Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview His Honour Judge Nigel Lithman. Now, Nigel is a barrister, he's an author and has sat as a judge, um, I think it was in St Albans and Luton in that part. That's right. And as a recorder at the Old Bailey. A recorder at the Old Bailey. Now, there's a place, formidable place. Yeah, formidable. And um, it lives up to its hype. But... uh, you always bring the same approach to things wherever you wherever you are. Yeah, absolutely. But where did it all begin for Nigel Lithman? You know, you're an East London lad, I suppose. And yeah. um, where did it all begin? Well, I don't know why you suppose that, but as it happens, you are right. Yeah. So I'm an East London stroke Essex Essex boy, born and bred. Uh, we were probably what was called a middle class family, probably middle proper middle class. Uh, my dad was a consultant anaesthetist. My granddad was a a GP, and we were brung up in Wanstead. And then um, I went to school in Essex, in Bancroft's in Woodford Green, quite posh. Uh, If that's not a contradiction in terms, you can be quite posh in Essex. (laughs) And, um, and, and And that's really where my, and I'm a very loyal person, that's where my loyalties lay. And that lasted really through my career. I was always very loyal to as an Essex person as well. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's where we met originally. Interestingly enough, Simon Coxall, who I interviewed on an earlier podcast, he was a Bancroft's boy. Oh, was he? And he found a load of um, history around people that were killed in the First World War because there's, there's a lot of um, a lot of people died. Yeah, in yeah. And, there, and there's a, a lovely monument that's there um, in the middle of the quadrangle. Um, and is always visible on, particularly visible on open day when the founders of the school come down from Bancroft's Avenue or Bancroft's Road in the East End. Oh, right. And it was, it was a charitable institution as so many of these public schools were. And in order to greet them, they would come down wearing mink coats or mink lion coats carrying maces. And me and a couple of mates once went out and there was a cafe on a roundabout. I can't remember actually where the roundabout was, but it said Ted's Cafe. We decided to get the Ted's Cafe flag and fly it from the, from the mast uh, <laughs> to, to, to greet them as they arrived in their Daimlers. How brilliant is that? So what, what's your family background? I mean, your, your father's in this, and 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 this, Born in England, my grandparents, which is not unusual for a Jewish family, weren't, but somewhat unusually, one grandfather came from South Africa and three from Eastern, three from Eastern Europe. And of course, they were chased out of Eastern Europe during the pogroms that took place at the beginning of the century of the uh, 19th century, that is, or the, sorry, the 20th century. And they um, came over to England. So that's their background. 
And settled in London? Or? And settled in London. My grandfather settled, actually. Life came full circle for me when I ended up going to sit at Luton. Um, my grandfather settled in Luton, where he had the esteemed pleasure of having one Benny Hill comedian as his milkman. Hence, hence Benny's song. Really? Ernie the Milkman. Because <laughs> Benny, Benny Hill actually was a milkman. So he was um, a GP. And um, my mother and father, they met during the war. My father was uh, served with the RAF. And he was mentioned in dispatches in North Africa. And he met my mother while they were both in uniform at a London hotel. And she was in the transport division of the Red Cross. And, uh, and, and that's how they then settled in the Wanstead area in London, where my father took up his, his medical practice. Was Wanstead a, a predominantly Jewish area at that time or? Wanstead was probably quite typical of my life in as much as it wasn't a, a predominantly Jewish area. You had to move further out to Ilford, et cetera, for that. But there were some Jews. And now the house that we sit in, which is, uh, perhaps I better not say where it is, but anyway, it's quite, yeah. it's quite close to Highgate, is, um, also has Jews, but it is not predominantly Jewish, which is the way I, I like it. I've always worn my religion on my sleeve because it was a very important part of my background. So I'll deal with that now. My, my great, great uncle wrote the words to the, what is now Israel's national anthem. Fascinating. And his name was Naphtali Imba. He came from Eastern Europe. He was a total alcoholic. <laughs> when he died, tens of thousands of people followed his body to be uh, buried in New York. And later, when the State of Israel was founded, it was um, disinterred and he was taken to Jerusalem for reburial. So rather than strictly orthodox, very observant Jews, um, we were traditional Jews, keeping traditional values, but also we had a very strong, or I had a very strong ethos in Zionism. I know that's an unf unfashionable thing to say, but it's the truth. Now, where did that come from? It came from the fact that I was born in 1952, so the Second World War had ended seven years previously, yeah. and we were just getting used to the sight of millions of bodies being uncovered in emaciated form in the concentration camps of Poland. And I was some um, six years of age when I first started watching them. And so to me, the need after the European history of Jews, which I went on to study at the Hebrew University, that the, the need for a homeland, I, I've always thought was unarguable. I know there are some people that would say that they don't make the best of their homeland, whether they do or not. Most countries don't make the best of their um, lives anyway, although that's partly political and partly governmental. But the, the, the actual need for a, for a homeland is, um, is, is absolutely important. Let me, let me sorry if I'm back, if I'm no, 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 wittering no. on, but um, I suppose let me deal in the, at the same moment with this in case this becomes too Jew-centric which it's not meant to be. I've, I've never found a conflict in being Jewish and being English. My priority has always been being English. I've never hesitated to describe myself as English or British. 
And I am, as it happens, an, Eng an English Jew. But the loves of my life uh, and the way I have lived my life are particularly English values. I yeah. mean, uh, for my mis for my troubles, as you know, I support Leighton Orient, currently <laughs> top of League Division Two. Come on, UOs. Um, but so, so I, I've combined that with uh, enjoying other sport, particularly as a as an onlooker, or often as an onlooker, and just the British way of life, which is a wonderful, wonderful way of life. But I don't minimise because I don't think it's something to run away from. My Jewish. Uh, ancestry. Your heritage. No, yeah. and I think it's really important. I mean, we um, commemorate, and rightfully so, the losses during the Second World War. And I think it's right, you know, the, the Holocaust Day, and I've done some great work with um, Rob Rinder and, and some other people, and, and I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated in people, but I'm fascinated in history, and I think it's right that we remember those six million people that died in the, in the camps. Your family, when they moved over from Eastern Europe and they came as, as a persecuted group. Yeah. I wonder what that was like for them because that was quite, you know, to, to move into the UK in what year was, would that have been? Uh, well, my father was born in 1913. So it was his father who right, came okay. from Eastern Europe. But it's important to try not to gloss over the different aspects of one's family roots in an, in an attempt almost to glamorise or sanitise. And there is that issue because whilst it's right, for instance, that my grandfather on my mother's side rode a horse to school when he was in South Africa, he would live off the land by um, catapulting sparrows and burning them over, over hot coals, but he then went to Witzwortersrund uh, University to study agriculture and then moved over here to study medicine. Um, so although that's a rather glamorous way to describe someone's life, my grandfather on my father's side, he came over here not speaking a word of English. Wow. So the question as to how families survive is for 3,000 years they have managed to survive and remain a race and a, and a religious people. Um, but it's it's obviously been very, very difficult, but they've learned to uh, make the best of life, to, to try not to moan about it and get on with it. And of course, a large number have been extremely successful. That's not to say that there aren't soup kitchens in different parts of London. Well, yeah. And the, and the label that somehow they are, they are all successful. Is, uh, is is misplaced. Well, I, I remember going to Petticoat Lane as a kid and there was a Jewish mission there for people that needed help. They needed support. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I think it's Middlesex Street on the right-hand side as you go down. And, it, and I think as a kid, you always thought, well, every Jewish person you'd ever heard of was, was successful. Absolutely, absolutely. But the, contra the contradiction in terms, I speak a lot about him because I'm very fond of him, and he had a big influence of my life, but my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, he, he sum, you can sum up his character in this way, is that he was involved in local politics. He was a very strong labor socialist guy. Um, and he had, uh, his GP surgeries were in the poorest parts of London, which were in West Ham and Newham and around, around the docks. 
But somehow, rather than the, the plight that doctors find themselves in these days, the, particularly the junior ones, of trying to earn a living, in those days, GPs were paid according to the size of their practice. And he had a particularly big practice, partly because I don't suppose he knew an enormous amount about medicine, but he was a very nice bloke. Mm. And so people would go to him and say, doctor, uh, I'd like you to help me. I'd like to buy a premium bond. Or I've had this notice come through the door. Can you please help me? Because I can't read it. What, what does it say? And so he was part of that, that what's called old school, I suppose. Um, but because of that, he managed to accumulate of sufficient wealth that he drove an old upright Rolls-Royce. But he also liked uh, birds that were the, the, the feather variety that were um, native to his home and to Europe. And so he, he built an aviary and he had about 50 birds. So on a Sunday morning, I would walk round to his house and he would have been in the aviary cleaning it out. So he's, cut, he's got a brown raincoat done up with a piece of string with bird's mess all down it. And he would climb into his uh, upright Rolls Royce and we would drive to Brick Lane to Club Row Market. And there he would get um, bird seed. And people would greet him on the streets. Hi, Doc, how are you? <clears throat> Excuse me. Don't worry, we'll look after the car. So he was this little old fella getting out of his car and his, um, if I may say so, uh, shit riddled um, coat and an old Homburg hat walking walking off down down um, uh, Brick Lane. So it was it was a one it was a wonderful mixture. It was a wonderful uh, sister group of contradictions that was his life, and probably is the life of. Um, of Jews in this country. I'm just going to say this probably, and we can probably get off the topic, otherwise it will be too centric, which is that because of the, that Zionism, um, I'm very happy to have uh, bought a home. We have a second home in the north of Israel, and we go there and spend a lot of time there. Um, I will be protesting when we get there about the, what is going on with the government. I won't protest about the same thing in London, um, because I don't, because otherwise one gets mixed up and confused between the rights of the Jews to have a homeland and the behaviour of their government. But I will protest against what's happening out there. Well, that's fascinating. It's, it's a fascinating subject. And as I say, we could, we could talk for hours. Mm. We could talk for hours anyway, mm. but we could talk for hours. You can. Whether, <laughs> whether I'm here or not is almost irrelevant. No, it's very relevant. So you're at Bancroft School and you go through your education there. What was that like as a, as a we're talking, what year did you join there? So I was at Bancroft between 1963 and 1970. And what was that like then as a school? It was great, actually. I don't know. I mean, just life's such an odd thing. As I look back and I say it was great. I was a cheeky chappy. You surprised surpri me. I know it would surprise you. I was naughty, but not too naughty. Uh, I was lazy, so I would arrive at school and I'd go to the locker room to find someone who I would know has done his homework and crib his homework from him. Um, but there was bullying there, which was obviously awful. There was a fair amount of snobbery there. There weren't girls there, 
So that changed when I left, and or it had just started to change. No, it changed after I left. And um, so there were girls in the sixth form then, and now it's co-ed. Uh, but I think a lot of aspirational families tried to send their children there to whom education was important. Um, but it was a private school, or largely private. And as such, in those days, I'm afraid it did not attract the best uh, teaching staff. Really? Because the, the, a lot of the teaching staff were those that might not be able to get into um, into a public sector school. Wow. So as a result of that, I and I think it was as a result of that, not my own fault, I didn't really get any sort of proper science education. And so the option of going into medicine um, was not there. But not just not just that, I really had a very positive yearning towards the arts subject, towards English and history and geography, etc. And so I was very happy to, to, to pursue those and end up going into a non-scientific background, namely the law. But I was lazy, I was cheeky. And there's something now, I do a lot of public speaking, as you know, Paul, and there's one aspect that I, that I confess to myself to, which is that I wasn't just bad at exams, I was frightened of them. And so although I probably didn't do myself justice, I ended up with passes in everything, but not great passes. And so when ultimately I applied um, to read English at Cambridge, uh, it wasn't of any great surprise that I, that I didn't get in. But I think that those failings, if you like, if that's what they could be called, have done me well. And a, a part of my speaking um, career, because when I go and speak to universities and to students and say, this was my background, and although that background wouldn't be sufficient for you to uh, go into the areas that I went into in those days, it does show you that through tenacity, you can uh, try and get to get where you want in life. And hopefully, like me, you all just happen to fall into something that really suits you. That's that's fascinating because you to suggest that you've fallen into something and then go on to be a QC now KC. That's hardly falling into something. You've actually you've you've carved a way for yourself that there aren't many people that have done what you've done. So well, I'm not unique. Uh, no, still, there are there are plenty of people, but there are plenty of people that will have been put off either because something's too difficult or because they've they've tried and they haven't succeeded at first and rather than try try and try again they might have tried again and, and and nothing more but let's not confuse the issues these days if you try and don't succeed at something you may not have the opportunity to try again i'm thinking about those that might be uh, trying to go into the professions um single mothers and simply don't have the chance. They, yeah. don't, they, they just don't have the resources to do that. And so I suppose I did have, and that goes back to a middle-class background, which I'm, I'm not um, smug about, but I did have a safety net, I suppose. Yeah. Even if not an actual one, certainly a psychological safety net. But so you've, you didn't go to Cambridge, but where did you go then? If it, from so what then happened was a series of things. So this was in the late 60s that I was looking around as to what I was going to do. Uh, Paris was burning. Student riots were rife. Yeah. Uh, the uh, flower power and the uh, age of free love was there. Um, although I 
probably didn't utilize it as much as, I, <laughs> as much as I, as much as I should have. Um, and, and I, I really thought either I would do something, either I would teach or I would do nothing. I would somehow just sort of, I don't know, just, just, just live a, a sort of fairly free and easy life. And somehow I, I would survive. I remember I, I had part-time jobs. I worked in Woolworths for five, for eight pounds a week, I think. My first fine for parking on a zebra crossing with my first car, which cost 12 pounds, by the way, in Austin A35. My first fine was eight pounds, appearing in good old Chelmsford Magistrates Court because I'd stopped on a, on a, on a pedestrian crossing to buy my then girlfriend uh, and myself a hamburger. And when I got out of the car and had to speak to the policeman, by the time I got back in, she'd eaten them both. And that's, <laughs> and that's what really stuck in my craw, not the hamburger, <laughs> but the fact that she'd, she'd eaten them both. How funny. How funny. The, what was, the, was your father's or your parents, what was their direction around your life, though? How did they try and influence you? Well, I have to say they were wonderful in the sense that, and credit where it's due, um, they wanted me absolutely to do what I wanted. They didn't want me to do nothing. They didn't want me to laze around. And we were discussing before we began this uh, recording, we were discussing how it, it was traditional very often for parents to say, look, qualify in something, and then you can always choose a different direction. Well, the response to that could be, well, why should I qualify in something if I know what that direction is? Yeah. It's, got a, it's got a different application these days in the law, which is although I had a very broad brush beginning to my career at the bar, and I would do both common law and criminal law, I knew that my bent was always towards doing crime. And so I didn't really need, but it did no harm, the, the, uh, the, the broader approach. But credit to my parents, they said, if you want to go, which I did want to do, to university to read English, go, go and do English. In fact, I didn't, as I've said, go to university to do English. And as a result of that, I think I read as much literature as I could during my 20s and thoroughly, thoroughly loved um, English literature. Do you think that that gave you the, I mean, you've got a huge eye for detail and I accept that you say that you were lazy, but do you think that that love of literature and, and overall understanding and assisted you with, because you have to read thousands and thousands of pages as a, as yeah. a barrister? Yeah, it's strange, isn't it, Paul? But <clears throat> I mean, my wife always tells me now what she's reading. And she reads voraciously. I mean, a load of rubbish, but she reads it voraciously. Um, I just can't really read. I mean, it's very old because I've now finished, I think, my second book right. writing it. But I, as to what I will read, I, I have hobbies that don't involve reading. reading yeah. And maybe that's because, like you, we had to read. Well, you had to deal with it firsthand. Yeah. I was lucky. I was only dealing with it secondhand. You had to confront it. I had to just read about it. But I was um, reading a novel, a novel a night, might be a short novel, or in in the case of uh, in the case of frauds, etc., tens of thousands of pages yeah. of a novel. And of course, they're novels where far stranger than 
far stranger than fact. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and make your care, if either of us had very much, stand on end. Yeah, it is, it is because I always, I was always amazed when I attended Crown Court that the barrister would have literally read the papers the night before because the previous day they'd have been working on a different case. And, and I just, I was absolutely wrapped with it. Where did you actually go to university to do so, your law degree? <clears throat> so it was all very complicated, but having said how I worked in Woolworths as a holiday job, I then decided to have what was un, untypical in those days, a gap year. And I went off to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and I did a course in uh, the history of European Jews. And uh, I did it with Americans largely. And they were doing it as part of a credit towards their degree. Of course, right. it wouldn't count as my degree anyway. So my, my lecturer at the time said, well, the qualification is no use to you at all, is it? And I said, no. He said, well, do you want to sit the exam? And he saw a glimmer of, of hope go into my eyes. I said, no, not particularly. <laughs> and so I didn't sit the exam. I then came home. My father had a life-changing um, accident. And uh, he was in a serious car accident that um, left him substantial uh, disabled, substantially disabled when he, he was in his 60s then. And that really made, turned our life topsy-turvy. And I was visiting him along with the rest of the family. We were going up to Stoke Mandeville to, to uh, visit him. I was working part-time. Uh, then I moved from, from Woolworths to make thermos flasks in uh, Loughton in Essex. And um, so, as I said, so we, we would go regularly to see him. And then I thought, well, I've got to, I've got to do something. What shall I do? As, as one would, I applied to do, uh, oriental studies and I was accepted at two universities to do that. I was then spoken to by a number of people who said, this really is a complete waste of your life. <laughs> Can you do something sensible? And in those days, <clears throat> you actually could read for the bar directly. Really? You could. And so one of the places, which was my first contact with it, one of my first places, one of the few places that gave this facility was at Chelmsford at a technical college. So I went up there to speak to them about it. And as happens in life, met somebody called Alan Jones, who was to have a great influence on me and who, and who was Obviously, I had visions of Oscar Wilde when I when I met him, and I think he did as well. And uh, so he said, "Well, why not come here? And rather than read for the bar directly, you can do a, a London external degree." So I thought, "All right, I'll do that. I've got to do something." So this is all with three weeks in advance of the course. There was no planning really of any sophistication. So I found myself at Chelmsford. And then, heaven knows who's going to be listening to this after, but I'll confess to something, because you, Paul, know that I ended up doing a great deal of work at Chelmsford Crown Court. You did. And the reason that happened was because I was dating somebody, and I didn't realise that she was going out with a solicitor <laughs> at the same time, and she persuaded him to instruct me. So he was the one. He encouraged me not to go out with his girlfriend, but he's encouraged me to um, 
to go to to go to Chelmsford uh, Crown Court. Now, can, can in case one forgets about it, can I talk at this moment? I know we're going out of sequence. But let me just mention as to why I thought it a good idea, and it probably says a lot about me, really, um, as to why I chose to practice so much at yeah. Chelmsford. Because if you, when you practiced in London, any case that comes in to you can go to one of 12 or 13 courts. And in each of those, in each of those courts, there might be, as at the Old Bailey, up to 20 courts inside the court. And so there were dozens and dozens of potential areas and you couldn't cover all of them. No. Whereas all of the crime in Essex, went either substantially to Chelmsford yeah. or in those days the South End. Yeah. Basildon hadn't been dreamed of. Uh, <coughs> it was just a, a, a horrid view in somebody's mind about what went on in Basildon. <laughs> but anyway, um, and so I thought any, any crime that's committed in, in Essex is bound to go to Chelmsford. And Essex is a particularly roguish county. Please. There were wonder, there were, and of course, we both have wonderful, wonderful stories of all the crimes that we've been involved with, one way or another, in the county of Essex. So that is why, uh, I, although I, I could tend to just brush aside um, any idea of deliberateness, anything other than any haphazard opportunity, of course, I realise from a inverted commas business point of view. The, the prospects of building a big practice were higher in Chelmsford than in London. As I did more and more and did better and better, it spread to London. And then when I was in Silk, I was substantially in practice. And what chambers were you at? I first of all went to a common law set, which meant that I was doing the whole gamut of, uh, of, of advocacy, matrimonial cases, contract cases, um, and criminal cases, but it was crime that always interested me. And so uh, ultimately, so then I was in one Harcourt buildings. And then as I specialized more and more, I was approached by somebody uh, saying, why don't you try and come to three hair court as it was then? And that's what I did. And then I moved from there, or we all moved as a set to occupy premises at two Bedford Road. And who held the top? Who was the, the at that time? Do you remember? Uh, in my first chambers, there was a lovely chap called Tony Cripps. I was offered pupillage with his son, Seddon Cripps, who was six foot four or five and an old Etonian. And I was five foot nothing schnip <laughs> and ex Chelmsford College. So we didn't have <laughs> things that were obviously in common <clears throat> yet and and if i hadn't been his pupil i probably never have had the courage to talk to him but as always these things are based on on personal interaction yeah. and we just i remember he, he suggested where we might go for uh, our first day's lunch and we found ourselves out in oxfordshire I said, well, why don't we call into henley and go to a pub there and sit by the river and so that's what we did I think he liked the, 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 the gall that I had for suggesting it. I bought him to celebrate my pupillage a necktie, but I could only afford one that ended up tying, being tied around and dropping 
four inches from his collar. <laughs> so for a very big man, he looked very silly. But I, I love, as, as happens, uh, we always uh, are in awe of our pupil masters, or we should be. Mm. And so that was him. So that was at... Um, at two, at uh, three, at three hair, forgive me, at one Harcourt building, it's in a three hair court. My first, my first set of chambers was Michael Lewis, then there were a couple of others, and then finally Bill Clegg, and now Brian Altman and Jim Stone. I, I find it absolutely fascinating going to the temple, and because all the history that's wrapped around there, it, it, people listening to this won't realise that. The temple was the place where Dickens based his characters for the Pickwick Papers. Yep. Uh, you've got the church down there where the Crusades actually set off from. Yep. It's absolutely, it's an amazing place. And as soon as you go through that that wicket gate, yeah. you're going into a different part of the world. And you know it. That's the great thing. So if those are people that, that haven't visited the temple, and although there were four, there are four inns of court, so there was the inner temple, middle temple, Lincoln's and Gray's. But those that are actually in the temple as such are middle temple and inner temple. I didn't have any contacts to uh, persuade me as to where to go, but I did have a cousin who was at the, I know that sounds like a, a silly contradiction, but I did have a cousin who was a barrister, although he never gave me any good advice apart from this. <laughs> he said, join inner temple because it's got a big car park. And so if forever you want it, if you want to park your car, then you'll get a permit far quicker than in one of the other inns. And so I did that, and it was just, it's just Dickens, you say it all, Paul, that, that it's where Dickens focused on his characters like Jaggers in Great Expectations. But it's it was just a larger-than-life, uh, environment. The place was run by a, a, an under-treasurer, it's called. He was well known for being a, a, a total boozer <laughs> and once knocked over the gates to the, to, the, to the gardens and I think ended up in some trouble for that. You were mentioning you, you had an experience with a, with a, a three-legged dog. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the under treasurer had a, a white poodle with only three really? legged, three, three legs as well. So this poodle walking around on three legs and the under treasurer rocking around between two legs, having had a little too much to drink was quite a sight to behold. And we used to have to dine there, as is well known, part of the qualification for the bar was at dinners and we would have to dine there and there was somebody who would came up who would come up to the students in order to share their drink which was very kind of him and also to scrounge cigarettes uh, and his name was Florence O'Donoghue and a real Irish character and you can in the end you can make your life appear quite remarkable when you draw a circle around all of the coincidences in it. So the coincidences are these. First of all, so far as Florrie O'Donoghue was concerned, he was ex-Trinity College Dublin. 
And he was at Trinity College Dublin with my in-laws. Later, I was to meet and marry uh, Debbie Abrahamson. And her three of her family, like her, were at Trinity College Dublin. And they were there with Florence O'Donoghue. But I mentioned in passing that my father had a life-changing accident Mm. and that he was an anaesthetist. And out of the woodwork to help him, uh, during this terrible time of his, came a number of his closest friends. And one of them turned out to be Sean O'Donoghue, who was Florence O'Donoghue's brother. Well, I never. So life is just full, isn't it, of remarkable coincidences. It is. I don't, I don't think I told you this, but when I first joined the police in the area in Braintree, there was a judge called um, Judge J.C. Llewellyn, and during the Second World War, he was the chief constable of the Special Constabulary. And he had this small cottage and we lived there free of charge. We were in the police and he allowed us to live there free of charge. We, in fact, we got evicted in the end because we hadn't painted the outside. And I think there was an inordinate amount of pornography that my colleague had left playing around. I will blame it on him. But um, but yeah, it was, and, I, and he had chambers in the, in the, in the temple. And I, but I find that, I find your world fascinating. Yeah, because the history that is is wrapped around the judiciary, the the wearing of the wigs, people don't get it. Mm. They don't understand why we've got so much tradition in our courts, but our legislation and our court practices are carved into history. You only have to look at um, the Vagrancy Act, which was which was built around the uh, coming back of the the soldiers from the Napoleonic War, which we still use. Mm. You know, it, it's yeah. it's it's bonkers, but we still use that. The um, Offences Against the Persons Act, all those types of things, it's carved into history and therefore we still use it because it works so well. What was that like when you first qualified as a barrister and you, you're, you've you got your wig and you've got every, your gown and everything's there? What was that like, the first case where you went in to represent somebody? <laughs> well, just stepping into that from the world you're just you're just describing. It it was an an amazing environment, sitting there at those dinners, hopefully finding a couple of people who would not drink so you could have their share (laughs) because you sat in messes of four. And I once got so tiddly that as I was leaving the temple, I had to stop the car because one could... turn across the middle of the road in the car, turn right towards Westminster, and you went through a gap. Well, by the time I was leaving the temple, I could no longer see the gap. So I had to get out of the car and check that the gap was still there. And I remember doing that. But it was, and uh, <laughs> and and one of the people who I dined with, I said to her, why did you choose the inner temple? And she said, I chose it because of my conviction. I said, what do you mean? Your conviction that the place was better than all the others? She had no said I was done for shoplifting <laughs> about two years ago. But the inner temple didn't seem to mind. <laughs> anyway, let me say, I, I, rec- I recount all of these um, things, etc. in nothing like the truth available on Amazon. Right. That's Indeed. The, we'll get that's to that. That's the plug. <laughs> that's the plug. But let's go back to the question, which was the first, the first um, appearances in court. First of all, the 
what we're speaking about, which is the uh, talking about the the magic of the environment of the temples. I, I particularly, as you know, am the last person in the world to think that that overshadows the issues that confront the junior bar and barristers today, mm. and the and the state of the criminal justice system, along with the state of the National Health Service. But to get back to your question, um, my magistrate's court practice, because you start doing small cases, obviously, at the beginning and going to the magistrate's court, was began in Greys, and I was working a lot in Greys in Essex. And those that are unfamiliar with it, Greys was particularly one of the poorer areas, mm. um, down by, uh, really down by docks as well. And there was, um, I think, a refinery close by. And Greys and, in Thurrock in Essex. And as one would uh, leave the train in the morning, you would simply go past a series of what the, was the equivalent of pound shops. Yeah. I mean, now, in those days, there were probably 60p shops. But, um, but pound shops and, uh, and pawnbrokers. So these were people who were living there, who were living hand to mouth. And so when you went into the magistrate's court, you thought you really are doing what you set out to do, which is to represent un- the underdog, those that were in need of um, someone to speak on their behalf, to fight for justice on their behalf. And very often I'd be in conflict with the police officers uh, at the time, because the police weren't bound in those days by the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. So the notes that they were reading from, the ink was still wet. Uh, and, uh, and and all of the other ways that I can insult you, Paul. And you won't and, insult me. And you and you and your ill. <laughs> um, so that was that was life in the magistrates court. And of course, it, so you learn to cross-examine, and it was it shouldn't be, but it was and it is great fun until you see the consequences of it. And I learned the consequences of it fairly soon when I was defending somebody. Um, in an allegation of assault on the police. And it was a a very, very minor assault. It really was. And, of course, I cross-examined the policeman uphill and down Dale, and I was pretty offensive to him, I suppose, within within the rules and within within what was expected of me doing my job properly and thinking what a great great performance that was and how well I had done. And at the end of it, my client probably because of the way that I'd conducted the defence in part. I certainly hadn't soft-pedalled because that wasn't my way. He ended up going to prison. Maybe if I'd have soft-pedalled, he wouldn't have done. But I thought this this really is quite serious. Mm. Obviously, the consequences of what I did in the sort of cases I was doing later were far greater. But it really it did bring me up with a jolt that this isn't just about having having fun and a good time and... As my wife would say, it wasn't all about me. It was about something bigger, <laughs> bigger than that. But the, but the life, I mean, as a police officer and as a barrister, we literally had people's lives in our hands. Yeah. I, I remember um, Stephen Harvey was prosecuting my first ever Crown Court case, and it was a, a former right. police officer who had committed a fraud over a car accident, and that chap got 11 months. Judge yeah. Taylor locked him up, gave him 11 months, and... 
now he'd be getting a community service, but but it was really catastrophic to that individual because he lost his family, he lost his livelihood, his mortgage went the the whole lot. And I think that the catalysts that fall in place actually they're so life changing, and we are part and parcel of those changes. And the and and the example that you <clears throat> give also, of course, it shows how dependent on the vagaries of who you draw in the lottery of life, in the lottery yeah. of the court hearing. Yeah. So the judge you mentioned was a particularly ferocious sentencer. Yeah. Uh, he was a religious man and he brought the wrath of God into his sentencing. So whereas one might be more compassionate in some cases, and I tried to bring when I sat as a judge, compassion and kindness uh, with me onto the bench. Um, for somebody like that, then to to uh, to have suffered um, or to be sorry, sent to prison for eleven months when he might not have been, was uh, was would be earth shattering. But we've all got to do our jobs. That's the, that's yeah. That's the important thing. Somebody said to me when I was speaking at a gig the other night. Somebody said, "How important is it?" to be kind as a judge. I said, well, isn't it important to be kind and nice always? Do you, do, because if, if you're, provided you're doing your job, yep. if you treat a defendant when you're a judge with kindness and respect yep. and show him that, he will find that disarming, not what he's expecting, and he will cooperate with the process and he will know whether you're a copper, whether you're a judge, whatever, you're doing your job. Yeah. I agree, and I'm smiling because there was an article that came out recently that has told judges not to be so hard on people in the court process. Now, I'm a bit old school because I still believe in, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags, four, sir. I am a servant of the court. I'm there to provide the best evidence, or I was the best evidence that I could put put before the court. Um, a judge was never there to be my friend. No, but let me give you a, let me give you a, perhaps an, an example of what I'm of what I mean. I remember we were talking about a firm of solicitors in Whitham, and I remember going into Chelmsford Court um, for them, and it was in relation to a pretty unsavoury case. It was a sexual assault of some of some nature, and the judge in sentencing him. I thought sort of almost took leave of his sentence, of his uh, senses, because he, he turned to him and said, you are a dirty old man. <laughs> and I sent it to you, et cetera, to <laughs> two years or whatever it might be. And, and because I was never one to leave anything alone and sit quiet, I stood up after the process and said, could I remind you that you're here to sentence my client. You're not here to insult him. He doesn't need that. No. He's got a guilty verdict from a jury. They've done their job. You're going to send me to prison. You've done your job. You're not here to insult him. No. I bet that went down well. Of course it did. <laughs> we, have you ever been disappointed by an outcome? I mean, has there ever been a, 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 a you thought, oh, you know what, that's not right or... I mean that's that's a strange question, but no, it's a good it's a good question, and it's very it's very topical, isn't it? To to uh, when you don't know the answer to time, say that always to compliment the question <laughs> and the questioner. Uh, of course, there, there there must have been hundreds of occasions when I when I was disappointed 
in convictions. But I suppose, dare I say it, the slightly better question, slightly more pertinent question, not a disappointment, but is it, am I disappointed that, that justice didn't prevail? Yeah. And I'm sorry to say that I recognize the overwhelming likelihood that the majority of people I represented actually were guilty. And so the the system of justice still works because they weren't all guilty. No. And you've got to find the ones that aren't and ensure that they are acquitted. Yeah. So of course there have been instances, but none spring out at me. But I think people don't realise and and you know, my family's history and and, and how we work and, and the things that my father's companies firms my father's work. People don't realise that if somebody comes into a situation and they lie to you as a barrister, yeah. it's then you're, you're professionally embarrassed. You can't deal with that as, as a... No, actually, Paul, you're wrong. Oh, right. If, if they lie to me as a barrister, provided, and you might think this is a, a, a distinction without a difference, provided they don't admit that they are lying. Right, yes. Or ask you not to propose a lie. Yes. Or invent their defence. That's what I mean. Then you, yeah, then, then, then you can represent them. What you can't do is knowingly participate in, in a lie. lie. And it's no good in saying yes, but in your heart of hearts. Well, in my heart of hearts, that may be. But you're not judging jury on your clients. You've got a judge and jury to be, and a prosecutor, uh, to, to deal with that. But provided he maintains that he is not guilty, you, of course, uh, would say, well, I will advise you. And if the, the advice is appropriate, the evidence in this case is really stacked up. It indicates in every sensible way that you, I'm afraid you are guilty. But more importantly, you're most likely to be found guilty and you will get credit if you plead guilty. Yeah. But I'm not asking you to plead guilty to something you didn't do. And I always had used this fallback position, um, which is that uh, your plea is part of your property. How you plead is entirely a matter for you. You can say to me, I am not guilty, but I propose to plead guilty. And then I would not be able to mitigate on his behalf. And uh, sorry, I would not be able to mitigate on his behalf and say he didn't do it because the judge would say, well, then he's not guilty. Yeah. All I would say is effectively he is pleading guilty because that is what he wishes yeah. to do. So it all, it all gets a bit entangled, um, I suppose, and probably those listening to this who aren't in the job or ex-job uh, will think it's um, it, it's slightly artificial, but but that's, that's the way it is. Well, yeah, absolutely. What was it like when you, you were made silk? Yeah. What year were you, did you take silk? 1997. There was a symmetry to my career, which is that I did 20 years odd as a junior barrister. And then I did 20 years odd as, uh, Queen's, as Queen's Council. Yeah. Then. And how, how does that work? What, how do you get called? Well, there, there, there are two sorts of work when you're, well, three sorts of work, I suppose, when you're prosecuting, the 
Crown Prosecution Service can use in more serious cases. Queen's Counsel in murders, serious fraud, etc. Um, when you're defending, the same criteria applies, which is that legal aid will be granted if the judge thinks it's appropriate to represent people invariably in murders um, and in uh, serious fraud as well. And so you tend to um, do a, a smaller amount of work, you do a smaller number of cases a year, and as somebody once said, you tend not to have a practice, you do cases. Yeah. So I, I went around the country, furthest between Carlisle and Plymouth, spending maybe four or five months of the year away. And the rest of it was in London, often at the Old Bailey. And I was, I was doing work there. But if, and people would say that I'm not known for my uh, modesty, but if I can be immodest, and, and I don't mean this in a boastful way, I think I got, became a better and better advocate all through my career. Mm. And there wasn't a moment when it didn't improve. And I think that's quite important. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing about taking silk is, is that it's, it, to some extent, it's artificial and a lot of nonsense in as much as there are far better candidates than I was who don't get silk. Um, and equally, there are, well, uh, worse candidates who do, who do get silver. Yeah. Like anything in life. It's, it's a lottery. But, um, it is an, it is a progression. It is a, a that, that you can aim at. I mean, I suppose if you want, look, I know policemen, ex job, who were DCs, PCs, and that's what they wanted to do. Yeah. And they had it worked out to a, to a, as a fine, fine art. art. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, and that's what they wanted. And I remember, uh, one guy, particularly Chalky White from the Corringham Grey's area, yeah. great guy. Um, and he always wanted to be a DC and he was very happy, uh, as such. Equally, there are those that want to rise to yeah. superintendents or, or commissioners, etc. And at least in, in, uh, there are so many parallels again. So at the bar, there's the, the distinction between being a junior barrister, in other words, anything other than a silk, um, and then taking silk. Um, and on the one hand, and in medicine, being a consultant, and then anything other than a consultant, being a junior doctor yeah. or registrar, uh, in the same way. So it's quite good to have that sort of benchmark. And it was... It was always there as a as a, an aspiration, I suppose. How did you get selected, though, and, what, and what's the selection process? Well, this, the selection process has changed, but it used to be from by very broad uh, reference references or recommendations. So the person would apply, and he'd ask him or herself, "Can I sustain a practice in silk just based on these fewer cases?" of the more serious type, or am I better off doing a wider range of lesser cases? And then if, if they decide, he or she decides that's what they want to do, then the, then the referral process would begin in those days. And the referrals would be um, those judges that know your work, all of the high court judges, all of the court of appeal judges, all of the heads of the bar in your particular discipline areas, um, those who are, are in authority in different ways. So it's actually a wide process because the head of the, of the court 
that you're in, for instance, me at Chelmsford, they would ask the other judges and then, then you would be uh, viewed by that. But you didn't have an interview um, and you didn't have an exam, so you just had a form to fill in. And uh, as uh, I didn't get it first time, I got it the next time, but I always thought my first application was actually the better one. But then I've always taken more than one, one at one time to do anything. So it took me four times to pass my driving test, although I suppose I shouldn't have broken the speed limit the first time, <laughs> the first time that I did it. Um, it's tempting to say, isn't it? It's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. But it's very prestigious, isn't it? I mean, the, the fact that you had QC, KC, everybody, and I accept that it's not an exclusive club, but it is still a, it's still fairly up when it comes to um, to employment and to, you know to roles in life, and and people look to you. Do you recall the first murder that you prosecuted or defended? Yeah, I'm afraid I do. I I say I'm sorry, Nigel. I say I say I'm afraid I do because I was led in in a in a murder case in which was on Grand National Day. <laughs> and the, the murder had taken place because there was a younger man looking after an older man, just in a, in, in a friendship basis. They weren't in a relationship at, at their home. And the younger, the older man uh, asked the, I'm getting it wrong, the younger man, asked the older man to put his bet on a horse in the Grand National. I even remember the horse. It was Royal Mail. And the uh, older man either didn't bother and pocketed the money or forgot. Anyway, of course, tragically as it happened, Royal Mail won the Grand National. And so the least that the younger man could do was to batter to death the older man who'd had the audacity to forget uh, in his 70s, to put the bet on. Oh, dear. And I was uh, led in the case. I didn't do it uh, as as the leader, so QC's lead juniors, and I was then a junior, so this is my first murder. And um, and the, uh, the defence was that whilst the young man admitted he'd battered him, he left him, when he left the house, alive, and well, but somewhat bloodied. And so the case was, was that, as is often the case in these things, rather, you have to suspend credulity because somebody else must have come in and finished the job. Of course. And in order to show that the, that the older man uh, was still alive when the younger one left, you would need some evidence of it in defending and there was some blood on the bottom of his sock. And so that would go to help this ridiculous defence by showing at least there's some evidence that he might have been walking around in his own blood to get it on the bottom of his sock. Now, standards, I have to say, particularly in those days, really vary from lawyer to lawyer. And my leader didn't cross-examine anyone about the presence of blood on the bottom of the sock. Right. 
The defendant was convicted. He would have been convicted in any event because of the rest of the evidence and the unlikelihood of anybody else entering the property. But it, it, it could have been run so much differently and, dare I say it, so much better. And so it really upset me that, uh, that, the, guy, that the guy was, you say, um, talked about disappointment before. I wasn't disappointed because of his potential innocence. I was just disappointed because of the way it was run. Right. But I do remember, Paul, that someone in Ch at Chelmsford at the t time, there was a, a copper called Bob, Bob Wright, I think. Yeah. And Bob surprised me because this was the first time I'd done a murder. And when Bob the policeman came in carrying a box of eggs, he was selling eggs on the day of the murder trial <laughs> to anyone that would buy them. I, I, was, I was rather surprised at his, <laughs> at, at his attitude. And someone said, well, maybe he's just trying to put you off, uh, put you on to wrong foot you. I, uh, wrong foot you, I just think it was a bit bonkers. Because really. <laughs> you prosecuted and defended, didn't you? I mean... I, prosecu I prosecuted and defended. So, yeah, but that, that was the first defence case. I, I prosecuted as a junior because in those days... Although he didn't particularly like me, we had an odd relationship. The head judge at Chelmsford, I think he came to like me. Uh, I think he saw the way to disarm me was to really to recruit me. In other words, he said that the, the police should instruct me. And so I ended up, rather than just defending, I also ended up prosecuting cases, although never at the same time, obviously. How did things change? I mean, we spoke, or you spoke briefly around the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. Yeah. The bad old days mm. where, you know, they would arrest somebody on a Friday and they wouldn't interview until Monday and then, you know, there's all sorts of skullduggery took place in the interim. Did things change for you as a barrister? Yeah, I mean, you just had to, you just had to recognise that the stakes had, had been raised, which is that from both... Uh, sides of the of the coin, um, you were going to be subject subject to dealing with cases where I think the most the, the most important change was the introduction of custody officers. Yeah, and so the opportunity for a policeman in a case to actually get hold of uh, <laughs> the the de the defendant yeah. um, became less when he had to go through a custody officer. Yeah. That's not to say I didn't, and as you know, I spent some of my time defending police officers in police yes. discipline cases. It's not to say that they weren't, it wasn't even possible that they could get hold of the defendant yeah. in custody chat. and have, have a little chat. Yeah, I mean, far be it for me to say, but uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting time because I joined the police in 86, so the pace had only just been introduced. And so I was working with a cross section of, of, of officers. It was life on Mars met the new the new breed. And of course, take recorded interviews because of no longer contemporaneous notes. Yeah. So that made a difference of the way that um, admissions or denials were obtained. Yeah. And the um, and of course, the, there was the question of the admissibility of this evidence. So that would become a, a cottage industry. You were, oh. you were always able to say, well, hang on, you didn't follow regulation C12, whatever that might yeah. be. Um, and you should have gone under B14. So we're now, we've now moved in and, and you're a, you're a, a silk. 
but you get appointed as being a judge. How how does that work? Well, what happened was was that I spent twenty years in silk and doing yeah interesting cases, substantial cases, and getting I thought better as a uh, an advocate. But as my dentist said to me the other day, sort of there comes a time when anno domini kicks in. And just as my teeth are probably the teeth of a 70-year-old man or a 71-year-old man, so there comes a time when you think, well, actually, I've probably done taking this as far as I want to take it. Although the bar as a self-employed person is a very happy career because you can keep it up for a smaller or, or greater for all of your natural life, not that I would. But I thought I'd have a few years on the bench. And they, the competition came around um, to sit. And although you had to offer the government five years of your life, the maximum uh, age limit at the time was 70. And I was just finishing a case that was lasting two months in Manchester. And I'd just done a substantial fraud in London. And I thought, I, I do want to apply for this job. So I applied for it and I got it when I was 65. Once again, uh, there, was, there was an exam in which I thought I'd done particularly badly. I had a very strong supporter, which did me no harm. As the senior judge at the Old Bailey, and I ran into him in the, in the, in the high street. And he said, well, your references will be very good. He said, that should carry the day. He said, as long as you've got sort of five out of 10 for the exam. And I said, well, I don't think I can go that high, <laughs> but I might have, I might have got quite a good four. Anyway, so with four out of 10 and, and a recommendation, uh, I became a judge. And I assume the reason I was going to do it was I wanted to be a judge in my, on my home turf. So I wanted to go and sit at Chelmsford. Right. And that would be then some symmetry in my, in my professional life. But so blinkered are some of the decisions that the Ministry of Justice make that they decided that I shouldn't sit in Chelmsford, but that I'd be better off in somewhere I've never been to in my life. St. Albans and or Luton, so that, well, I'm only going to do this for four or five years, so what the hell? In fact, I loved sitting in Luton, and it taught me, it exposed me far more to diversity uh, than I have been exposed hitherto. So I think it made me a, a better person. Um, and I, I enjoyed the work. Also, I'd seen the job done by so many people so badly where they were being oppressive, they were being rude, they were being biased against the defendant. And I would always say to myself as I looked at them, if ever I became a judge, which I don't really want, but if ever I did, just don't behave like that. Mm. Seeing uh, a judge listening to a piece of evidence that invariably helped the prosecutor and then looking at the jury and almost winking at them, not quite, but I mean, heavily underlining that piece of evidence as if to say they are members of the jury, that's got him, hasn't it? And you just think that's just so... Um, that's not what the judiciary so is built wrong. on. It's yeah. just so, it's so undignified and it's wrong. And so I, I hope I bought 
brought with me. Um, characteristics of being nice, kind, compassionate, yes. and those things. And um, somebody told me recently they, that they didn't want to become a judge because they didn't want to send people to prison. And I said, well, actually, what in the job that you do at the bar, you also are responsible for people going to prison. And the pleasure I got was from those that you didn't send to prison, mm. the opportunities that you, that you get. The whole system's a strange system, as, as you know. One of the, one of the, the, the uh, typical situation, I suppose, was uh, I had before me one of my close friends representing the defendant. And there's nothing wrong with that, and there's no, no. need for me to say anything because uh, you know everybody anyway in the profession. Yep. You want to start distinguishing between those that can and those that can't appear in a case. You wouldn't have anybody left. But he was representing, uh, I won't go into too much detail, but he was representing somebody. I'm not even going to no. name the case or, or the type of case. And he was sure that because it was because of different features of the case that I would not send them to prison. And he thought, I suspect, it helped. It didn't do his client any harm that it was he, a friend of the judge, who was representing them. I had no hesitation that if, it would, if the person was convicted, which they were, I would send them to prison. There was absolutely no choice. You can't couldn't start having people doing this particular sort of offence and not going to no. prison. And to prison they went. Um, did that person take offence? Did that put strain on your relationship? No, he was surprised that I had, not because of the relationship, but because of the, the, the nature of the case. But it was one of those sorts of cases that really would undermine the system. Mm. And you couldn't give lip service to, to that. What I mean, after a, after a trial where somebody has been found guilty, your role as the, as the defence barrister, you would go down with your clerk or, or with your solicitor yeah. and you would go down to the cells and yeah. you would see that person. Yeah. Now, we would be standing there, you know, feeling smug because we've actually, you know, we've got the person that yeah. we were off. Yeah. What was that like for you to go down and see that person after, you know, they've been sentenced to life imprisonment? Usually a lot easier than you'd imagine, which is the, 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 the part of the um, attractiveness of the job uh, of defending somebody is based on the fact that there is not generally the sort of pressure and upset that you would think there was. These people very often, particularly in the operations of crime, they recognize the trouble they're in. Mm. And they know that what you're going to do is going to be the best for them yes. that you can. And if you can, you will bring off a, a, res a result for them. And if you can't, you can't. So there would be that sort of fate, fatal, fatalism to, about it in yeah. their mind, and they would not give you a hard time. Equally, if you're prosecuting somebody, usually there is not a bad atmosphere between prosecutor and defendant. No. Because they know 
that if it wasn't for you, wasn't you they'll get some. There'll be somebody else. Yeah. That will, there'll be somebody else that will, that will do it. But I've had, uh, and I often describe um, a situation mid-trial where the atmosphere was impossible between me and the client because the client had an opportunity at the end, the end of a prosecution case. He had the opportunity to plead guilty to manslaughter, which would have led to him being in prison for five years. And the prosecution were willing to accept that. Or there was the inevitable alternative that he would carry on, be found guilty of murder and serve 25 years. So mm-hmm. 20 years, real time yeah. difference. And for, for it's the only time I can really remember it. I just thought my duty lay entirely in persuading this man that this case was overwhelming. Yeah. The jury were champing at the bit to convict him. The judge would have no alternative as a really horrible case, but to give him 25 years yeah. of a life imprisonment. And so he'd have to be crazy not to take this deal. And this deal he did not take. And he would not admit to himself, I don't, it's, it, as I've said before, his plea is his property, but he was running around a room, banging the walls in his own frustration with himself. So it, it, it can be a highly charged. It can be a highly yeah, charged case. I, I I I understand why people plead not guilty. I mean, the popular, <clears throat> the the popular. Well, why didn't they plead guilty? Well, the fact is that because they they have got the ability to plead not guilty. And the fact is, if they they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. So they, you know, like you say, they could get a, a manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility or or for what what have you. But the fact is that if they plead guilty to murder, they're going to prison for for life anyway. Yeah. Albeit yeah. the tariff may change, but and I can only think of a handful of occasions where actually somebody has pleaded guilty. I think it's happens more now, but certainly. Yeah. You know, when I was when I was walking the boards, um, very few people pleaded guilty to murder. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you had a case with any merit, that it should be reduced to manslaughter, either as you say through diminished responsibility, what used to be called provocation. Yeah. Uh, provocation, no intent. Provocation, gross negligence, manslaughter. Um, one of those options. Generally, if there was going to be a a a resolution by way of manslaughter, it would take place in the discussions between defence counsel and prosecutor. That was the time when it could be achieved, Mm. when the prosecutor might say, if you were lucky, actually, I could recognise this. This is not murder. This is manslaughter. And I've had some really interesting cases where that's happened. So if I can tell you about one... Mm. um, there is one where a, a person who was subject to epileptic fits, he was taking a new drug called Kepra. And the consequence of taking that drug would be that rather than fitting as uh, epileptics can have the misfortune to do, which is to writhe on the floor in their own agony, um, he would, his writhing, his epilepsy was taking place inside his head. Right. And so he would have effectively a, a volcano or an earthquake going on 
within his brain. And it was in those circumstances that he killed his father right. and set light to him, as you do. Um, the first prosecutor said, I'm not interested in this sort of technical defense, which is what it is. And uh, he must be tried for murder. How fate wields, wields it, it, or how the, the wheels of fate revolve, because that prosecutor was unable to do the case. He returned it to somebody else, someone who's now a high court judge. And the successor looked at the case and said, actually, I accept entirely that this was occasioned by this change of medication. The medication was shown to have this consequence. He didn't, he wasn't in full control of what was going on in his life. And those are the circumstances in which he killed his father and so accepted a plea to manslaughter rather than continuing uh, against them for murder. And, and as, a, as a judge, you, you didn't get the opportunity to try anybody as, for the offence of murder? Did I? Yeah. No. But you, but you sat as a recorder at the Old Bailey. What was that yeah. like? I mean, I, I've given evidence at the Old Bailey. Yeah. And as you walk through that door, you just think of all the great trials that have ever taken place there. Yeah. And it's, a, it's an amazing place. Yeah. And actually, I was treated according to the seniority of my rank as a young recorder. Right. So I was sitting and my, my chambers in the building were the converted toilet. <laughs> behind court 19, I think. And so I, I was sitting there, as with all things, very often these places, how old they are doesn't always reflect well on the facilities, and you're sometimes better off in the modern yeah. in the modern courts within the old Bailey. But the traditions that were there, uh, and it was really about the tradition of lunch. So the tradition of lunch was, although this sounds very pretentious, was you would go upstairs and you would remain wigged and gowned. Really? You would not take your wig or gown off and you would then go to an ante room for drinks and um, you would then go and sit down uh, over, over lunch on a long table in a boardroom, very, very elegant, and you would be served with a very smart lunch um, and have chat and... You would, um, you would have guests there and the guests would be drawn from all sorts of areas. I remember, uh, TV journalists, BBC journalists. I remember, um, MPs who are sports commentators, uh, who, who'd been sport, uh, personalities, um, cricketers, widely varied and always very interesting. And sometimes you could be asked by the uh, chief administrator of the Bailey if you would host the drinks in an anti-anti room. And I remember being asked to do that. And I've not been great at passing exams. I've not been a great lawyer in my life, but I was very, very good at hosting the drinks <laughs> in the anti-anti room at the Old Bailey. Did you ever get the opportunity to go down to the cells? Because there's a, there's a famous cell that is actually the, or the focal point for the hanging area. Yeah. Did, you ever, the, did you ever go down there? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's the, the gate that was originally Newgate, Newgate prison. Um, and, and again, it's about, about life going full circle. My grandfather, who I said was a, a, a GP, he would have a number of, um, jobs uh, outside of his, um, surgeries. 
And they included being the doctor to West Ham United Football Club. Really? Good man. Uh, they would in, include going and inspecting new employees at the rubber company that made Durex in, Silver, in Silvertown. Yeah. But also seeing one or two people who had been convicted of murder. An opportunity, I'm not sure how it arose, meant that he would go down to the area, which did become new, which was Newgate where these um, hangings took place. And uh, so, so all of all conferences with clients charged with offences um, at the Bailey who were in custody, they'd all be kept uh, on the, uh, in, the, in the basement area, some class A category, high, high security, some less, less or so. And they would always get them out. But what always, I'll, I'll never forget is, is just the size. It doesn't help that I'm not tall, but the size of the gut of the prison officers at at the old Bailey was something unrivaled anywhere. Else. <laughs> they were all they were all seventeen foot high and mm. seventeen foot wide and as fit as hell. And I very often lead uh, my junior when I was a QC would often be one of my friends who was. Uh, equally uh, vertically challenged, I think the expression is. And so I would say to the prison officer, unless you get my client quickly, I'm going to set my junior on you. And he was about three foot nothing. And the, the prison officer was, and the prison officer would just laugh. That's brilliant. Look, I mean, you joined, you, you were caught to the bar in what year? <laughs> do I have to answer? Yeah, you do, yeah. 1976. So 11 years after the abolition of the yeah. death penalty. Yeah. Oh, what's the last was person hanged in 68? I don't know. I so think. anyway, so it's it's probably less. But you would have years. worked with people that were prosecuting yes. and defending under yes. that regime. Yes. What was that like? Well, the, one of the intimate tales we always heard was from one of the wags who was at Chelmsford. Henry Green, yep. and Henry was led by the then Attorney General, and the Attorney General uh, was, represent was representing a murderer who was convicted, and at that time, he, the attorney, had to get back to the House of Commons, so left Henry, his junior, to finish the case off. Now, the chap had just been convicted of murder, and so the inevitable sentence was passed, and then he was taken down and Henry went down to see him, only a young lad at the bar, whilst his leader, far more experienced, had, had, had gone off. And Henry couldn't think of anything to say other than as he left the cells, having commiserated with this man just been sentenced to hanging, death by hanging, he just said, well, keep your chin up. <laughs> <laughs> Henry was a great raconteur, so he would have made that story up even if it wasn't true. <laughs> but, but he swears it was true. But the question arises, would I have done the job if if that had been the tariff? And I'm not sure. You're not sure? I'm just not sure I would have done. I mean, the responsibility would be overwhelming. Oh. And you would, want to, you would want to see it all through. Wouldn't you? You would. And, and the thing is that the, the advancement in investigations, mm. so you wouldn't have the, the number of miscarriages or, well, you'd like to think you wouldn't have them. But, but the advancement, DNA, CCTV and all the other, other stuff. 
But it's a very, very emotive subject because you look at the likes of Ian Huntley, for instance. Yeah. Under that regime, he would have he would have gone to the gallows. Yeah. Absolutely without, yeah, without yeah, a yeah, doubt. Yeah. Um, and as a defender, as a prosecutor, you'd be thinking that person's going to die as a result of my great work. But as a defender, you'll be thinking that person's going to die because we couldn't. Well, I'm not sure you would. I mean, in that particular case, you might say um, if ever there was a case, if ever yes. there was an argument for it, it might be there. Yeah. If there was an argument. If there were an argument for it. And, and the same goes with the, um, the the critter that killed the two police officers up in Manchester. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. there are a number of people um, that would be, I've, I've got a very broad view of it. I mean, I think 68 was when the guillotine was last, last, last used in France. Right. Um but yeah, it's a it's a very emotive subject, and it's you know. The- but it's it's one of those subjects which, whenever it's been obviously whenever it's been debated in the House of Commons, it's always been rejected. Yeah. If the bar was asked, would they like to? And in a way, it, it would be a natural thing to do to ask them whether or not how they would feel about participating yeah. in that system. They too would reject it. And I did know somebody who's. Uh, uh, who represent, represented some one of these people who was wrongly uh, convicted and wrongly hanged, uh, as it was shown. And he always showed off the fact that, well, he represented him when he was a very young member of the bar. And yeah. it was only a couple of difficult people, obviously like me, who would turn around and say, well, actually, can I just remind <laughs> you, that although you were very young and inexperienced, your client was hanged and he shouldn't have been. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I always always thought the Bentley and Craig case is remo- is fascinating yeah. from so many uh, perspectives. These were the two youngsters who were over the went o- onto the roof of a factory they were burgling, and one shot the policeman. Yeah, and the one who shot the policeman was too young to be yep. hanged, and so didn't. But the one who was old enough. Uh, who didn't shoot him was hanged as an accomplice yep. and by a, and sentenced to death by a judge who was a particularly unattractive and unpleasant individual. Yep. And so it combined a lot of issues that really uh, made it a, a let him have it. I think that was the let him have it, which actually I'm not even sure it was. It was. It was. It wasn't agreed. Was said no. And. That would might have been the the, the best line of the defence. Yeah. Let him have it, meant give him the gun rather than well, rather yeah. than shoot him. Anyway, yes, yeah, so there are all those vagaries, all of those inconsistencies. But you know, judicial murder is is another way to to to, to think of yeah. it. Yeah, and so who who wants anything and, to do with that? And of course, you were the is it the chair of the bars yeah. association? Yeah. So you were the, I suppose. Shop steward, is that the right? I, I, it's a really, it's a really apt word. Yeah, absolutely, really, totally, totally um, a shop steward. Strangely enough, I mean, it, it's I've never, I've never had that period, which was um, 2013, 14. I haven't had that that label given to it, but it's completely right. In as much as I thought it was really important to be constantly in touch with all parties. Yes. And that meant that meant senior <clears throat> judiciary, it meant the minister, it meant the Lord Chancellor and the Minister of Justice, um, and everybody else, as we then were orchestrating, or I was 
uh, leading the, the orchestration of a strike, yeah. which was because of the situation the bar found itself in so far as the earnings were concerned. But, but I think people lose sight of it. People think that every barrister drives around in a Ferrari and yeah. that is far from the truth. You've got, yeah. you've yeah, got absolutely. juniors who have to wait for their wages. The yeah. monies that they actually earn, it's a pittance for the yeah. amount of work that they put into the role that they undertake. And I think a lot of that's lost because the public don't know. And it's yeah. about the education of, of the public because they need to understand that not everybody becomes a, a KCQC. Yeah. Not everybody goes on to have a great television career, you know, as in, in Rob Rinder. Mm. Um, there are a lot of people that are working hard and not earning a lot. And, of course, the changes in the legal aid system yeah. has had a huge impact on – and the rights of audience and direct access and everything else. Absolutely right, Paul. Absolutely but right. there are some significant issues that if we're not careful, we're going to lose – the great people that undertake that role, and they are—they are the significant issue. So let me let, let me um, deal with this. So I was chairman of the Criminal Bar Association, twenty thirteen to fourteen. I then finished off two cases that I was in, and I was uh, promised to between twenty fourteen and twenty seventeen a fraud and a murder in Manchester. And then I went on to the bench. And after just four years, when I came, when I got paroled, when I was released from, uh, <laughs> from being a judge, um, I came back to exactly the same situation that I'd left, hence the strikes of 2022. Yeah. And I think those issues and the right to strike, uh, etc. I think those things are really important. I have to say, uh, as a matter, I, I, will, I will reveal... Um, someone complained about me becoming involved in politics. I personally don't think it is a particularly political thing to do to actually um, espouse the um, side of the bar in the, in the way that I did very recently, but somebody took exception to it. Um, and so you can't please everybody. But I've always been prepared to speak up uh, for those in, in, in need of support. It's what it's what a defence barrister's life's been about. Yeah, it's absolutely. about it's about supporting the underdog. But this is the same with the criminal justice system and with the National Health Health Service. The we we are going to lose core uh, pillars of a democracy unless we really strive hard to proactively make their lives tolerable. And it's all very well to say, well, they find life difficult. But with, with the recent position of the criminal bar, they were, in my day, when we were striking, it was because the, the lead figure was £46 for a day's work could be the misfortune of a barrister who only has the one job done in the one court um, to do. And, and now uh, a government survey had shown it was £12,000 before... Uh, before expenses, and that was, and before tax, and that was uh, a mean figure for the first three years of their career. And so they simply can't afford to do that. And the way I regard the profession is, is, is this. People were writing to me after Her Majesty sadly died and said, 
will you be calling yourself KC? Do you become KC? And I do quite a lot of work on social media in order to promote the book I did largely. Um, and in the end, uh, people were saying, yes, I've become KC, blah, blah. And I was saying, is it really that important? Are there not more important issues that the bar is facing, that the criminal justice system is facing, yeah. rather than how you want to call yourself? That'll happen in time. In fact, yeah. I was notified by my bank that, uh, that, that, that the court, that, that any records they had, should they be amended? So, so I dealt with, I dealt with that then, but it's, it really doesn't matter. No, but it's a nice thing to have, you know. Yeah. And, and it is important. You're now a published author. Thank you. And it's fantastic. Now, I don't read a great deal. I've got to be honest with you. I'm, a, I'm an audio book person. I'm with you. Oh, okay. No, um, but either. I found your book absolutely captivating. Yeah, um, um, Nothing Like the Truth. It's called Nothing Like the Truth. Um, still available on Amazon. It's had good sales. It's been published a year. It's sold about 5,000 copies so far. Um, it's called Nothing Like the Truth because, of course, the, you'll instantly think of the oath that you take in court, which is nothing to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. I'm afraid one of the controversies that drove me to write the book was the reality that when barristers get together, they don't necessarily believe that their clients will be speaking nothing but the truth. And when judges sit down at lunch, they're not sure that the client, the uh, defendant in their court is talking nothing but the truth. In fact, they would say, I think he or she is speaking nothing like the truth. And that's what's the driving force here. Really? So there are a number of controversial topics um, uh, embroidered around with my life um, and career embroidered around them and written as I hope and probably isn't been reflected sadly in this, in this interview is, uh, is that all my set pieces are done with comedy and humour. And that I think is important. Oh, it is ma massively important. And yeah, no, it is an absolutely brilliant book and I can see the you know the characters and I can, I can actually visualize some of the scenes that you, well, you are most of them Paul yeah <laughs> <laughs> when you step back or what because you're you're still at the bar you never lose that I suppose you're all well, I've, I've, I've got my I've got my I have my title I have um I was appointed as a when I retired from full-time sitting, which I did in about 15 months ago, uh, entitled to sit because I was appointed as a deputy circuit judge, but I haven't used that opportunity because there are other things to do and more, maybe better and more interesting things to do than, than, than that. Life's a living. And you've written another book, which you're hoping to get yeah, published. I have written another book. It's not funny. It's not smart. And it's actually, Rather than that expression, it's not smart, it's not funny. It is smart, but it's not funny. Yeah. Um, but there were two books that I wanted to write. So one I've written in this public. The second one, uh, I'm going through the process now of promoting it. I think it would make a good uh, film in some some respects and or a good novel. But the, the bulk of it is written and the uh, synopsis is there if somebody is out there. 
who would um, enjoy to uh, like publishing um, this effort or discussing it with me, we can do it. So, I mean, you, let's let's talk about that very brief. How do you write a book? Come on, Nigel, you're 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 well written, you're well read. How did, how did you do it? Well. The first one was, was simple because some of the, some of the, uh, anecdotes that I've described and some of the issues that were present, you've just got to decide, I suppose, in a factual memoir type book, the 50 things you want to incorporate and then the themes that you want to make. If you think about it, I've been right, I've been writing books. For 40 years, yeah. I mean, every closing speech is a is a book in miniature. Yeah. A prosecution's a prosecutor's opening speech is setting out a novel. It just happens to be the truth, but it's setting out a novel yeah. and as to what's taken place. And although I've, I've always enjoyed speaking and I now sp- spend my time doing a lot of speaking gigs and obviously this is just plugging myself... Uh, speaking for charities, universities and societies, legal and otherwise, part of the speaking process is the writing process. Mm. It is for me anyway. My wife, who's a t- who's uh, at the bar and then was also taught at the um, School of Law, she and I differ, which is that she lo- she thinks that one should really operate via a series of uh, memory jogging and bullet points. I think the more you need to write out, there's nothing wrong with that. It's part of the process. And then you get to know it and then you put it to one side and you don't refer to it again. So that's the way I like to do it. And so uh, what you need in writing a book is you need format. So you need to know your chapters. You need to know what's going to be in them. You need to plot all that out and it becomes like any other job. So when we were blessed or cursed, depending on your position, with lockdown, I could find two or three hours a day for three or four months, during which I wrote the first book, the novel stroke broadcast stroke film. That was, um, whilst you're then going through the publishing process of the first one, is I really had this other one in my head. And um, it was all very close to my heart. And uh, and I do want to write that. It's not, as I say, it's not humorous, but it is, I, I like to think, fascinating and exciting. Um, but I'll go back to writing something funny yes. after this. Before we conclude, what would your parents say now to 71-year-old Nigel? I mean, your, your dad was... Very young when he when he passed. Yeah. What, what, how would they how would they see what you've achieved? Because I think it's remarkable. There's, I've always thought there's there's one thing that's quite difficult about that those that boast I was the first person to go to university or college. I was the first person to go to a profession. You can see instantly that that is remarkable. I had very accomplished a very accomplished father. Yes. And so he could say, I, I'd, I'd expect nothing, I'd expect nothing else. I think they could, I always worry that he would see me as very, as uh, quite um, 
maybe arrogance the word, I don't know. Uh, and, I, and, it, and it does concern me, it does trouble me, because obviously we all want to be loved and respected mm. by our parents, and equally, honouring your father and mother is a very important commandment, certainly one of the nicer ones anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I think they would be proud of I me. I think they would be. And that a particularly, yeah, I mean, the, Paul, this, this is being in, this is in the psychiatrist's chair now. Sorry, it? Lee, but it's but, but it is. It's, you're, abs- you're absolutely right. And, and what I've and like my book, I'm tr- I always try these days and to tell nothing like the truth. And that's what why I say, that's why I say there came a time when I was frightened of exams. Didn't isn't it great that you can do well despite going to a technical college? My mother, my father would be very proud of me. Would be very proud. Mm. Um, my mother would, uh, maybe as a Jewish mother, would say, "Quite right, too. quite right, too." That's what I expect. Quite right, too. And the, the 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 politics side. How would your your grandfather was a Labour, Labour yeah. supporter? Yeah. How would he feel about the way that some of the senior Labour Party have have treated the Jewish faith? Well, and if you don't want this included, I, I'm quite happy. I'm quite. I am quite. Quite happy to have this included because uh, I think it's important that the country knows it, that uh, the country, the people that listen to this, appreciate this. And maybe it's the last thing that I would say on um, parts of this interview that have been quite what I call Jewish centric. There, there have been two occasions on which I've seriously thought I cannot live in this country. The first occasion was in the days of one of the right-wing supporters of Margaret Thatcher, when I thought it would just be too awful if he came to power, and I don't think I'll name him, actually. No. But the one thing, one person I am quite happy to name is Jeremy Corbyn, Mm. because Jeremy Corbyn imbued the Jewish community with real fear. I don't know whether people appreciate that. But to most of us, we still know that for 3,000 years, we have been moving from one place to another and that you only have a certain lifespan in any particular country. And there seems to have come a time uh, when that expires. Now, people saying that this is 2022, 2023 now, they were saying when we were first expelled, but it's 1190. You know, and it's been thus around the world forever. But I suppose before he might have said, and what, what would have been the result? I suspect any relationship between um, his government and Israel would have been impossible. Yeah. Um, and that would have, have offended me. And so I would have left. I wouldn't have wanted to stay. Which is a great shame because you are, you know, you are... Mr. England, aren't you? At the end yeah. of the day, that's yeah. that's where you are. But you, yeah. and I'm really grateful for your candour. Yeah, um, you are the you do fight the good fight, and you've supported the right people at the right time. And and for that, I'm very grateful. So, Nigel, now that you are semi-retired, I suppose, for want of a better word, yeah. What do you do in your spare time? Well, it's I suppose it's true, isn't it? If you want to, if you want to ask somebody to do something. You, get a busy man and life really is busier than, than ever. I'm, I'm lucky that I have some good hobbies. I enjoy painting and I enjoy traveling, but otherwise I spend my time either writing or speaking. Um, 
So I do a lot of speaking gigs. I speak at charities, societies, law societies, universities, before dinner, after dinner, instead of dinner. <laughs> and bar it's, mitzvahs. Bar mitzvahs, absolutely. And, um, and, and always with the same idea to be interesting, but be funny, make them laugh. That's the answer. Absolutely. I've never had complaint made uh, that I haven't made people laugh. And I told you I've just finished a novel about an alleged honor killing set in an ultra-Orthodox, unusual situation, uh, set within the Jewish areas of London and Eastern Europe within a trial at the Old That Bailey. doesn't sound particularly funny, though. It's not funny. The new one, the novel, is not funny. But otherwise, they are funny. So who do you take inspiration from? Because you are a funny man, let's, let's put it there. But are there any Jewish comedians that you take inspiration from? Well, these days, um, it's interesting that, that Larry David, who, was, uh, who wrote Seinfeld and right. directed Seinfeld, and he realised, or perhaps immodestly, that he'd make a, he could do as good a job in front of the camera as, as uh, Seinfeld did uh, in front of the camera camera previously and he's good he's right he is very funny and his art is to do things unscripted and going back to the origins if i make a if i'm making a speech at a public event or, a, or a pri even a private event i will know what i'm going to say and talk about and have prepared it but i'll then improvise and i'll then leave it and i'll go off on a tangent and there does come a time when it when it verges into into stand-up which Fantastic. is which is good. Well, but that's no difference to the theatrics of a, a crown court, is it? No, absolutely not. And anyone that says it's not a it's not a theatrical profession, of course they're uh, they're, they're they're pulling the wool over your eyes. Absolutely, and as we well know, there are some famous people that come from famous theatrical backgrounds that have taken to the uh, gone to the bar. Nigel Lithman KC QC. Before we conclude this interview. Is there anything you'd like to add, alter, or correct? <laughs> um, no, and everything I've said has been nothing but the truth. It hasn't been nothing like the truth. And don't confuse the book, because actually, before I brought out nothing like the truth, the secret barrister who supported my, who enjoyed my, enjoyed my book and promoted it, also uh, contacted me and said, you should know I'm bringing out a book called Nothing But The Truth by coincidence. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm hoping that one day I will know who the secret barrister is and be able to interview them as the secret barrister. But, yeah. yeah. Um, Nigel, thank you so much for your time. Paul, thank it's been you. a real pleasure. Um, I hope that it hasn't been too stressful for you. And, <laughs> yeah, and that the psychiatric that. assessment has gone through quite well. <laughs> thank you so much, mate. Fantastic. I've loved it. In fact, Paul, it's been like... It's been like Desert Island Discs, but without the music. Indeed. Hasn't it? Indeed. Great. Well done, mate. Thank you.